Welcome to the Proclaim and Defend podcast, a ministry of the Foundations Baptist Fellowship International. We seek to encourage and inform pastors on modern-day topics from a biblical perspective. Our mission is to bring together like-minded Baptists to collaborate in glorifying God through fulfilling the Great Commission. Greetings, everyone. That's Don Johnson once again with the Proclaim and Defend podcast. So I'm back again this week with David DeBrain. We interviewed him last week. Uh, he's one of the authors in our issue of Frontline called The God of Beauty. So we're talking about this subject. It's kind of, you know, a thing that we don't think about a lot, and uh, especially in the sense that we're talking about it here in the magazine this time. And David's uh, done a lot of good work for us. He gave us an article at the beginning of the magazine called The Meaning of Beauty, his second article is the story of beauty in church history. So what we're, we're looking at is how Christians have thought about beauty through the years. So what we're saying is these ideas aren't something brand new, which we've just come up with and, and are using them in the, in the culture wars, but rather these are ideas that Christians have discussed and thought about and, uh, wrangled about, I suppose, uh, throughout history. And it's helpful for us to gain a perspective on what has been thought and taught about this in the past. Of course, it's a, you know, 2000 years of history. He's just in a magazine article. He's, he's rushing through it. So he's giving you the main highlights. Uh, the, um, I think you'll find it interesting and helpful. And in our era, we have a world where, you know, it seems like beauty, well, there is still beauty and there are people who create beautiful things, but there is also a culture that is sort of upending everything and trying to overthrow every idea of the past, including what is beautiful and what is, uh, what is good in our world. So beauty and good are connected together and so is truth. Uh, they're part of the nature of our God. And as we look to God, we can find, uh, the, the reality of what beauty is and why it's important for us to think about this and our own uh, in our own uh, church context in our own personal life as we uh, try to serve the Lord and honor him with everything that we're doing so that's uh, that's enough introduction for the uh, discussion uh, enjoyed talking to David very much it's uh, quite the thing he's in South Africa and I'm in uh, British Columbia so you know or I think it's 12 hours or 11 hours difference, something like that. But we managed to get together. It's quite enjoyable, and I uh, hope you enjoy the discussion. Now, I do want to also remind you to subscribe to the podcast. Hope you'll do that. Uh, It keeps all of the interviews coming your way. You won't miss anything. And uh, if you subscribe as a paying subscriber, uh, David's article is available right now on our Substack for you to read. If you pay for a, a yearly subscription, you will also get the, um, the, the magazine in your mailbox. So that's the, that's the, uh, deal that we offer. But we're not just about offering deals and benefits. We're also looking for your support. So as you subscribe to our, uh, work here at, uh, Proclaim and Defend Substack, you are supporting the work of the FBFI, Foundations Baptist Bio, uh, Fellowship International. And there's a lot of good things we're doing, including uh, supporting the chaplaincy ministry, our fellowship meetings, and the things, uh, the media that we're uh, producing. And we hope that 
uh, you can have a part in that and it is it gets seen around the world so you can have an influence in that we really appreciate your help in that way all right well that's enough uh, talking from me enough commercial and uh, time to get to the interview so I'll I'll, uh, I'll stop talking and I'll, the next thing you'll hear is me introducing David Dubrain once again all right, so welcome again to the Proclaim and Defend podcast, and we're here today again with Pastor David DeBrine. He's a pastor of New Covenant Baptist Church in Johannesburg, South Africa. We've already discussed the meaning of beauty, his first article in our Frontline uh, issue this time, and he is uh, he also has an article called The Story of Beauty in Church History. And uh, you do mention this phrase, beauty is in the eye of beholder, Right at the outset of that article, you suggest that recent history has, the subjective has triumphed as a notion of beauty and that the church is largely captive to these notions. Now, um, you said also that in the church for 1500 years, there was broad agreement on the concept of beauty as something objective that exists outside ourselves, which is consistent with the notions of the philosophers. Um, the classical notions, I guess, is what we're talking about there. So what changes did the Reformation bring about in the church understanding and expression of beauty? I'm not sure. Maybe the Reformers were still consistent with the earlier viewpoint, but maybe you could address any changes or developments. Yeah, I think the you're not seeing a huge change in uh, the Reformers. Um, you know, John Calvin, for example, believed that the world was a theater for the glory of God. Uh, Luther is a great uh, proponent of musical beauty. Uh, Luther did embrace, some would argue, some of the nominalism that was coming into um, the, the teaching of the time. He definitely had a, an aversion to some of the uh, medieval scholastics. So there is some of that. Uh, but we don't see any sort of radical breaks happening at the time of the Reformers. Uh, our big shift really begins with uh, the early Enlightenment into your, you know, your early 1600s going into the next few centuries. That's where uh, things begin to go astray. Um, as a more man-centered approach takes place, uh, increasingly the, the thinking in Western uh, philosophy is doubt rather than belief. So we have um, Descartes who decides the, the safest approach is to doubt everything until he can reduce it to something indubitable. And he knows he's thinking, so he therefore he knows he's, he exists. I think, therefore, I am. And from there, they then try to build, based on pure reason, what they think they can be certain of. Uh, and so, but this is really doomed to failure because as they start experimenting with reason as the great foundation and then they move on to experience or empiricism as the great foundation, more and more they're moving towards subjectivism. It's inevitable that as they disconnect themselves from God as the ultimate basis of truth and revelation as the ultimate disclosure of God, more and more, you have to build your castle of philosophy on something else, uh, which turns out to be very precarious uh, and becomes more and more inward, more and more focused on the, the human psyche. 
Right. Yeah, I think that's that's very important to note. Um, and I, as I was reading your article, I was wondering, um, you know, we talked about the Reformation, you talk about the Enlightenment. Those are uh, the reformers are holding the line. They're reforming religion, not so much philosophy. Uh, I probably, as you say, Luther is is repelled by some of the church fathers who tried to combine philosophy and and uh, religion. But but uh, okay. So but the thing that struck me as I was reading that, I was uh, I recently listened to a book on the Medici family. And that basically covers the Italian Renaissance. And uh, I've, I think I've studied a little bit of that in other places as well. But anyway, you didn't mention the Renaissance. The Renaissance started before the Reformation and lasted for about 100 years into it. So I'm just wondering if, if that had anything in your studies, if that had any impact on this concept of beauty. Yeah, some or, would say the Renaissance was the the actual flowering of the Middle Ages. Certainly that was C.S. Lewis's view that uh, whereas the uh, kind of anti-religious historians want to separate the Renaissance out and, and make it a, a kind of a break from the Middle Ages, uh, Lewis and others have argued in many ways the Renaissance represents everything the Middle Ages was working towards, which was a love of beauty. It was a love of learning. It was a love of truth. It was a right view of the Imago Dei in human beings. Now, were there humanistic elements moving in the Renaissance? Certainly um, they were. They, they was their reaction against certain forms of scholasticism. They were. Uh, there was a fatigue that was coming into Europe over certain religious debates. However, the, the Renaissance in its best form really represents what the Middle Ages had come to distill, which is that God is the center of beauty. Man is made in God's image. Uh, man at his best represents and teaches and shows forth the image of God. And therefore, when he gives himself to art, to music, to learning, and he seeks to do it in proportion, or at least in harmony with God's cosmos, what he will produce is works of exquisite beauty. And that's precisely what you find uh, in the architecture and the music and the painting of the Renaissance. So uh, certainly a mixed period, but a period that I would look at in its best form really represents what the Middle Ages was striving for. Um, in its negative forms, it begins to show that tendency that's going to be picked up and accelerated during the Enlightenment. Right. Yeah, and I think I think uh, like in terms of the the products of the Renaissance. You know, you have the sculptures and the paintings that were uh, very lifelike, very ordered. But then the artists, man, their right. lifestyles. Wow. What a what a mixed bag. Totally. Right? And, and so. uh, you know, we, we see the incredible capacity for human beings to uh, mimic the order of God's world, to discover the, the order of God's world, and yet to not personally submit to that order. Uh, it's a it's a profound uh, part of our fallenness that we can we're so good at seeing what that order is and understanding it, which is in many ways the root of modern science, which 
again, begins during this period. It's that ability to spy out the secrets of God's cosmos and copy them and imitate them. And yet you can do so with an unregenerate heart that does not yield love to God and yield reverence and, and submission to him. So we, we definitely see that as well, right? You, you, you can have an ugly soul and still produce things of beauty. Yes, and that's that that's a uh, calls each of us to look at our own hearts, doesn't it? As we, you know, we're always very self congratulatory on our spiritual attainment, but maybe not. Maybe it's not quite so good as it as it should be. Now we've already talked about Jonathan Edwards in our first discussion, and he's perhaps the only Christian thinker who opposed the subjective drift of the Enlightenment. Uh, and since, since then, for various reasons, many Christians have adopted a subjective view of beauty. Uh, you referred to pragmatism. So how has that affected the majority Christian view of beauty today? Yeah, you know, it, it was actually Oscar Wilde, who certainly is no character that we want to imitate. But Oscar Wilde had a, had a great quote, and he said, uh, beauty is perfectly useless. Uh, but by that, he meant it in a complementary form. He meant he didn't mean it negatively at all. He meant it positively. What he meant was that is that beauty is not a utility to be used for something else. Beauty is an ultimate value. And ultimate values are not means that we use to other ends. We, When we find an ultimate thing, such as beauty, we enjoy it for its own sake. Uh, the glory of God is not something I um, that I springboard off to something beyond the glory of God. No, the glory of God is where my love should terminate. Well, all of this comes back then to pragmatism because the, the philosophy of pragmatism is essentially it is good if it works. Uh, and the, we, the question you ask pragmatism is, well, what works or what then defines the good? And in pragmatism, it's just really a kind of an internal system of if it works for us, if it if it something that we find increases our happiness, if it's something that we find increases human flourishing, then it's useful. And if it doesn't have that use, then what good is it? So pragmatism then begins to take the idea of beauty as something of a a useless concept. You know, what good is this thing? Uh, how will it help us? How will it help us be healthier, wealthier, better looking, more powerful? Um, you know, what good is this thing? And as pragmatism begins to reign, there becomes more and more of a disdain towards uh, anything which just seems to be uh, transcendental or ultimate. There, there's more of an anti-intellectual growth, especially in America at this time, late 19th century, more of a disdain towards philosophical concepts. And so beauty starts to be frowned upon as an elitist idea, as speculative intellectualism, as aimless philosophizing, something that doesn't help the common man to live his life and to do practical things. Um, and and at, at that level, pragmatism as an overall philosophy begins to just eschew the very idea of beauty. Yeah, as you're talking there, I'm always thinking as you guys talk. And, uh, 
in the area of music, so we have classical music that some people think, well, that's useless. Like it's doesn't move me. So what good is it? So that's and you know, uh, I have some relatives who say things like that to me. And the, uh, you know, one of my favorite, I listen to a lot of opera. Now I don't, I I prefer the ones that are not in English, so I don't understand the words because. Because what I'm interested in is the music. And, you know, you listen to some of these singers, man, how they, the, the beauty of their voice coming from, you know, take it, the range and all of this. And so, but it's not useful. It's something that you appreciate that you, and it, and, and in that sense. And so, whereas the, the popular kind of music is, uh, it makes me feel good. Okay, I feel something with that. And that's the feeling is what is pragmatic and right. appeals to me. Yeah, C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called An Experiment in Criticism. And he uses this um, this example uh, to help us see the difference between what we might call kind of consumerist art or popular art and something that's truly beautiful. And what he says is that certain kinds of he's, – he's using literature for his um, experiment. He says certain kinds of books are really not meant to be received. They're not meant to change you. They're not meant to make a demand on you. They're meant to be used. They're, they're meant to be consumed. They're so predictable. They're so uh, filled with cliches. You kind of know what you're going to get. You're ready for it. And that's what you want. You know, it's, it's, it's the, it's that TV yeah. series, which has that same formula every week. You know, what's going to happen. You're waiting for it. And that's what you want. Lewis says, then there's another kind of book that will not submit to that kind of treatment because the characters are too dense. The writing is too beautiful. The thoughts are too lofty. And the only way you can deal with a book like that is to open yourself up to it and receive it. You have to humble yourself before that book and let that book do its work on you because it's, it's a different work altogether. Well, you can really take that concept and you can extend it through music, through poetry, through visual art. And you can ask yourself, when I'm dealing with something really beautiful, uh, can I just use it? Can I just consume it? Or must I, as it were, humble myself to receive it for what it is? And that's a really important concept because the truly beautiful is not just pragmatic. I, I can't just chew it up and spit it out. I have to, as it were, almost submit to it. I've got to understand it, yield to it, listen to it, truly receive it before I can understand it and even let it have a transformative effect on me. The parallel here is God's word because God's word is this ultimate form of beauty and you cannot use God's word the way you would use a comic book or the way you would use a pop song. You can't consume it. You've got to lay yourself open before it. You've got to humble yourself to its form, to its shape, to its actual words. You've got to see what's there. And as you yield to its beauty and you let it do its work on you, you're transformed. Um, and this is not a pragmatic experience. It has practical effects. There's no question. But true beauty does. That's the great irony. If you try to be purely pragmatic with beauty, you, you, 
you'll come up short. But if you let beauty do its work on you, nothing will be more practical because it will transform you. Yeah, yeah, that's very, uh, that's very interesting. And I do think, I, th I think somebody listening to this would say, well, okay, you guys are very intellectual and you are into all this heavy duty stuff. There's a process of growth that has to happen in our lives and really in every area. And I think when we get to heaven, we're going to find out we haven't progressed anywhere near as much as we thought we did and that we, we need to progress more, right? There's, there's much more. I, to I think the progress. way I put it, and I'm a pastor, so, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm trying to translate these things into everyday language for the everyday Christian who's got a busy life, a hard life, a life full of hard work and all kinds of duties. So I'm not calling on Christians to try to become art critics or music critics or anything like that. What I'm saying to Christians is, Beauty is part of your sanctification. You're living in God's universe. And just as God wants you to believe the true and he wants you to practice the good, he also wants you to love the beautiful. He doesn't want you to love what is ugly. That's a part of your Christian growth. And that's not just a visual question. This is a question of all of life. Paul says, test all things, hold fast to what is good. And I think the good there is, is a synonym for, for the beautiful. Everything that is excellent, we should cleave to it. We should embrace it. So, you know, I want to say to a Christian, yes, this is a growth experience. Um, it's part of your sanctification. As Philippians 1, 9, 10, and 11 says, Paul is praying that your love would grow in knowledge and all discernment so that you would approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ. So, uh, you know, growing in a, in a perception and a love of what God loves, uh, this is not an elitist, snobby kind of um, exercise in, in pure aestheticism. This is really uh, learning to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Now, in our culture, of course, everybody uh, is so dominated by the the uh, uh, subjective concept of beauty. I wonder how uh, how this is perhaps part of the barrier we have as we're trying to communicate the gospel. Because, you know, it's like, uh, you know, the rich young ruler, he, he turned away when he found out he had to give away everything. You know, he is materialistic. But, you know, often we have people, they'll sort of uh, come to church and, and uh, they'll turn away because they have to start loving something different. Like um, years ago, this is when we were starting our ministry. I, I was working in a print shop and there was a printer there who started. He was a real hippie and he he was uh, coming. He was trying to be he was an aspiring rock musician. He would send off. He would record tapes, send them off to agents trying to get discovered. And anyway, so he started listening and talking to me and he, he actually came to church and he made a profession of faith. Uh, and he was with us for a month or two. And after a while, he said, he says, I'm going to leave. He says, I, I want to thank you. This is his words. I want to thank you for turning me on to Jesus. <laughs> he says, but I can't accept your view of of beauty of art and and he wanted his rock music 
and he could tell that wasn't my world. So that was quite a, uh, uh, interesting, but I think there's a barrier in our witness. Yeah. Even in this yeah and we have to accept, you know, pre and post conversion. Uh, these are some of the most stubborn idols that we hold on to. Uh, these are the things that we cherish because very often the things that we love, whether it's, it's musical or visual or a particular book, it's so wrapped up in our identity that we are almost fearful of what we will be if we release this thing. If we surrender this, if we give this up, who will I be? Um, you know, am I, am I giving up my entire past, my entire history? And, but, you know, to that, we just have to comfort the Christian and say, or, or the, the person who's considering the gospel and saying, you know, the, the whole gospel is, is he who saves his life will lose it. He who loses it for my, my sake will find it. You know, the, it is a process of dying to live. If you, you trust God with the thing you're giving up and you will never, ultimately lose because God is no man's debtor. But we do recognize the severity of the issue. Um, we're dealing with loves. We're dealing with the deep heart treasures here. And uh, one of the great difficulties for Christians as this process of sanctification takes place is when God puts his finger on something and you come to realize that maybe this thing you've loved all along really isn't that beautiful. Maybe it's just nostalgic. Uh, maybe it's just sentimental. Maybe it's just traditional. Uh, but it really isn't in itself that beautiful. That's a real struggle. Um, I've had it myself and I've watched people it have it. Yes. It's just a huge moment of having to give something up, uh, trusting that there's something better. Yeah, that's right. That's a good way of putting it. Now, on the other, uh, sort of on the flip side, uh, the church has, uh, I would say, largely adopted this kind of approach. They've sort of absorbed this from the world, I guess, this subjective approach. So how does that diminish the message that we preach as we, you know, we see, you know, I'm thinking here, I, I should probably spell it out. I'm, I'm thinking about the contemporary approach to worship, the worship wars that, you know, we are that's such a big deal. So do you think that diminishes our witness? Yeah, it has to. Uh, you, you know, and I think a little thought experiment that could help people with this is, uh, you know, take that word beauty and the things that you do with it. And and then just everywhere you see the word glory of God, put the word beauty there in Scripture and see if your approach to beauty would work with that. Um, so you'll have someone who will say, well, you know, I don't think this is beautiful. It's beautiful to me, but not to you. Or that's beautiful to you, but not to me. Well, let's try that with the glory of God. Imagine saying, well, God's glorious to you, but not to me. Or, you know, I find God glorious, but I don't expect you to find him glorious. Now, suddenly we see that this concept breaks down radically when we're dealing with the beauty of God. Uh, because we are really calling on people to acknowledge God as the ultimate good, as the ultimate beauty. And if we're going to permit this idea that there's really no such thing, we've surrendered the idea that people should worship God. Um, and then when it bleeds down into the applications, what it starts to look like is, well, you can worship him that way, I'll worship him this way. Because there really is no objective nature to who he really is. 
And therefore, there can't be a worship that corresponds to God's nature in its form. In the end, the only thing that we're left with is sincerity, right? I'm sincere, you're sincere, you mean well, I mean well. But you worshiping God with, you know, guys breaking chunks of ice with their forehead, I'm worshiping God with a piano, he's worshiping God with a puppet show and a magician, he's worshiping God with a piano. But in the end, I guess it all just comes up to God as one sincere offering. Well, I think most of us reject that because we say scripture teaches us that God himself didn't receive all worship. He didn't accept Cain's offering. He didn't accept when Uzzah the priest touched the ark. He didn't accept what Nadab and Abihu did. Um, there were moments when God said no. And that tells us that there's worship that corresponds to God's nature or his beauty. And there's worship that does not. Uh, far be it for me to claim that 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 there's this kind of code book that you can find that will unlock every perfect application of worship. We're not saying that. What we are saying, though, is it certainly is a pursuit God wants us to undertake, just like he wants us to undertake the moral pursuit of difficult ethical judgments and finding out what pleases God in this situation and what pleases God in that situation. So in the very same way, we should be asking what would be beautiful worship right here in this context that accords with the beautiful God. Mm, yeah, that's right. All right. Well, as we sort of wrap things up, I wonder if you would have some advice for Christians about how to recover a, a biblical concept of beauty in their personal yeah. life. That's a great question. I, I think um, it does begin with uh, a teachable attitude that says, um, I might have a lot to learn. Um, and here I can just use a, a personal testimony as as someone who grew up in a, in a secular home uh, with no leaning towards beautiful things, no sort of formation that took place in my life. And so when I started to understand that beauty is objective, that in some ways it's part of my sanctification, that it is deeply connected to the glory of God, I just began to realize that this is a learning experience for me as much as learning Christian doctrine was a, a learning experience for me. I, I simply understood I need to sit in God's classroom and learn. I need to learn what it is to discern better. I need to learn from Christian history and see what Christians before me produced. Uh, what did they sing? What did they write? What did they paint? How did they think? I, I need to at least listen to that and see that before I dismiss it and simply absorb what is contemporary. Uh, I realized I had to sit and listen to the concepts of reverence and what does that mean? What is the fear of the Lord? What's the expression of the fear of the Lord in, in my culture and my context that best accords with that? So all of that to say, um, I simply realized I had a lot of catching up to do. I had a lot of learning to do. That didn't mean necessarily picking up books on, on aesthetics, so it wouldn't hurt to do that down the road. But it, it, it more meant a question of 
As part of my sanctification, I not only want to know what is true and do what is good, I also want to learn to love what is beautiful. Uh, I just want to find out what that is. Intellectual beauty, visual beauty, musical beauty, um, you know, all of these things, I, I want to learn what they are. For me, that also entailed realizing that even though I might like something, I should also ask a second question, which is, should I like it? Uh, once I've understood that beauty is objective, that it's rooted in God, my own preferences are not the final word. I should acknowledge that I like certain things, but then I should ask, why and should I? Um, does this seem like the beauty that I'm learning has been part of Christian history? Does it seem to accord with that? And if not, well, maybe it's my likes that need to change. So uh, I guess, Don, in the end, it, it comes down to teachability, right? Um, a certain level of, of humility where I just am willing to put my preferences on the altar, willing to submit to judgments greater than my own, willing to listen to Christian history, even non-Christian philosophers and critics, and and just, just hear what they've said sit in that classroom and be instructed. Um, and I'm certainly have not arrived, but uh, it's been, it's been good to be in that classroom. Yeah, I think that's true. And I guess those of us who, you know, maybe we've made these decisions, some or at least some of these decisions towards, you know, the arts that we like there's certain arts that I've decided, okay, I'm not going to consume those. I'm not going to have them as a part of my life. There's these other ones that I do approve. Well, I think that as we tell people, there is, there is something to pursue here. Our testimony is something that, that is very helpful to, to help them to make decisions themselves, at least to be open and to start learning and seeing, you know, what is there in this? There's, there's probably something more than, what we're thinking so all right well you've given us a lot to think about it i want to thank you for both of these articles and for the conversation and, and uh i wonder if there's anything uh last final words you want to say before this and and then we'll I just want to encourage my brothers and sisters in the lord uh not to be intimidated by the topic of beauty uh nor to be offended by the topic of beauty but in all things, just submit it to Christ, see it, have the desire to please Him in all things. And, uh, certainly as you, as you do that and as you pursue Him, the Holy Spirit can grow you and give you that discernment. And so that's been my experience and I would just exhort you to do the same. Amen. Well, thank you very much, David. I'll just ask you to stay on for a little bit longer and uh, we'll wrap up now for this session of the Proclaim and Defend podcast. This has been the Proclaim and Defend podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and give us a good review. If you want to learn more about the FBFI, check out our website at fbfi.org or our blog.